from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. Just at the high level, how would you characterize the state of that market, the market for the creation and sale of soil carbon credits? <laughs> uh, to be quite frank, I would, I would say it's kind of a mess at the moment. Earn income with carbon farming. That's how one big ag tech startup makes the pitch to farmers that they should participate in the nascent but burgeoning soil carbon credit market. But there are questions, pretty big questions, actually. Let's get into it. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Shale Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So let's start with the good news. It appears that there are a variety of changes to practices that farmers can make to their soil that both improve the long-term health of the soil and plants and substantially increase the total volume of CO2 that is stored in the soil, in the process, removing it from the atmosphere and creating carbon removal. The bad news is that on all the measures that we really care about when we think about quote-unquote quality for carbon removal credits, these practices are pretty challenged. Measurement and verification, permanence, additionality, and, and so on. Which doesn't mean it's necessarily not worth pursuing, but it does mean we need to be very clear-eyed about the challenges. I feel strongly about this. I worked in the carbon markets 15 years ago, and I watched them never take off, I think in large part because of a lack of trust that a credit actually meant something, or more specifically, that a credit meant a ton of CO2. And I think if this market is going to be different, it needs to behave accordingly. So let's get the lay of the land on soil carbon crediting today, or rather the lay of what lies under the land, I suppose. My guest is Freya Che of Carbon Plan, which has done, in my opinion, some of the best work applying serious rigor and analysis to the standards surrounding emerging carbon markets and particularly soil carbon. Here's Freya. Freya, welcome to Catalyst. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Excited to talk about soil carbon markets and soil carbon credits. Let's start with the premise here. Can you just sort of walk us through the idea behind why changing practices on farms might or should result in carbon removals that could generate credits? So to begin with, soil carbon is a huge carbon reservoir. Uh, it holds more carbon than the atmosphere, more carbon than all of the terrestrial biomass combined. Uh, and our agricultural practices have done a pretty good job of depleting carbon in the soil. And the idea behind soil carbon credits is that through uh, practices, change in practices in agriculture, we can restore some of that carbon and sequester additional carbon in healthy soils. 
A um, number of practices can help do this, things like reducing tillage, things like cover cropping, improving how you graze. Um, all of these things, you know, in general, we think of as improving soil health and resulting in carbon sequestration. Um, but of course, exactly how they work and exactly how much carbon is sequestered really varies a lot based on where you are in the world, what else is happening in your context, and other implementation details uh, and uncontrollable details that really change what exactly happens when you apply these practices. Right. So we'll talk more about why the devil's in the details and what that means for generating these credits, I think. But the basic premise is that there's this dual benefit, which is that most of these practices should be, not only should they sequester more carbon in the soil, but also, as you said, they should improve soil health. Do we have a sense of if they should improve soil health independently? Like what has been the barrier to farmers adopting these practices anyway, even in the absence of carbon credits? That's a great question. Um, first of all, I don't spend a lot of time with farmers myself, so I, I think farmer communities can answer that question best. Um, but changing practices can often be expensive. There's often a kind of barrier to entry, a period of time where you have to, on your really low margins, maybe invest in new materials or learn something new or uh, reduce yields for a period of time before your soil health improves. Um, and, and that kind of gap between where you are and a new equilibrium that you would like to reach is an, an absolute barrier um, that can be hard to bridge for, again, farmers who are often operating on really low margins, um, both in terms of energy and in terms of dollars. All right. So the idea here is there are practices farmers can implement they will improve the soil, but in addition, they will increase the amount of CO2 that is sequestered in the soil. If they do, if we can create an incentive for them to do that, and they wouldn't have otherwise done it, which we'll come back to, then uh, then we will have sequestered more CO2 in the soil. We will have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. And so we will be creating carbon removal and thereby should generate credits to sell to anyone who wants to purchase carbon removals or carbon offsets. So that's the idea. Create this financial mechanism to incentivize farmers to do that kind of thing. What is, uh, just at the high level, how would you characterize the state of that market, the market for the creation and sale of soil carbon credits? <laughs> uh, to be quite frank, I would I would say it's kind of a mess at the moment. Um uh, there are kind of layered challenges, um, but maybe I would zoom out and first talk for a moment about what is a quality credit. So uh, we talk about offset credits. People say they represent a ton of carbon. Um, but when is an offset credit really good? Well, it has to have a couple of qualities. One, um, it needs to actually represent a ton. You have to actually know what happened. Um, two, you need to think about how that credit is being used and not just the ton itself, not just the quantity of carbon, but the duration over which it's being stored. Um, so when we use offsets, we are often using them to offset fossil emissions. You know, you burn fossil fuels, that carbon enters the atmosphere and um, impacts climate outcomes for literally millennia, really, really long time scale. Uh, credits in the current market might represent anywhere from um, 10 years of carbon storage to 
you know, maybe a couple of decades or at the very, very high end in forests, but not soils, 100 years. Um, so you're talking about a really different time scale than the, the emissions you're trying to offset. Um, a third dimension, so we had kind of like, is the quantity we're talking about real? How long are we saying we're storing it? Um, and how does that relate to what we're trying to offset? Um, is it additional? Additionality is this idea that if you want to take credit for a climate benefit by buying an offset credit, um, your money needs to be enabling something new and good to happen. Otherwise, you are just paying for business as usual. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the third main dimension. And I would say in the current voluntary carbon market, uh, there are challenges on kind of all three of these fronts. Um, so we did a really interesting uh, review of all of the protocols, so all of the crediting rules that are currently used to issue credits to soil carbon um, in collaboration with Jane Zelikova. And basically, you know, you have these PDF documents that, or maybe you have multiple PDF documents and you're trying to stitch them all together and figure out what the minimum bar of a credit, like what, what minimum quality bar is promised by these crediting rules. Um, so we analyzed the protocols across you know, these three dimensions and some other details. And basically what we found is you have lots of protocols who you know, maybe aren't even measuring the soil. So it's actually really hard to tell what's going on. Um, and uh, kind of across the board, you have low permanence, so low durability, short, short contract terms. Um, and across the board, you're really missing additionality protections that are meaningful. So um, not only are, are there a diversity of kind of opaque rules for crediting soil carbon, but kind of across the board, you would hope that a higher quality bar was, was guaranteed by these rules. So let's dig into each of those three areas, because I think these are the three core challenges with soil carbon credits. There are also similarly challenges with forestry credits yeah, absolutely. and a bunch of other stuff, but we'll talk about it in the context of soil for now. So let's start with the first one, uh, which is, you know, sort of measurement and verification, basically. So uh, let's just take an example of one practice, something like reducing tilling, for example. Um, what is happening in these protocols now? What are they doing, if anything, to verify or request measurement of whether the tilling actually occurred and whether it resulted in more uh, carbon sequestration? So there's a huge diversity of approaches to this quantification. A lot of protocols allow you to simply model what has happened. So take a soil carbon model, maybe it's not even calibrated to your fields based on soil samples, and you can just say, hey, model, you have some uh, conception of what it means for me. Maybe it's also location-based, so maybe it's me and my location to reduce my tillage. Um, and the model spits out an answer about how much carbon sequestration you can expect. What's really challenging about that is that we know that soil carbon is highly variable across time, across space, across depth. It varies on these really granular scales. So especially if you haven't been really careful about calibrating a model to a particular context, confidence is really low in that kind of estimation. Um, you really, you know, 
consensus is you really need to sample your soil in the place that you're trying to quantify outcomes if you want to have a, a robust quantification that you can use for an offset. Um, there are a couple of examples of people who are thinking about really robust sampling, uh, which is awesome. And, uh, you know, broadly would encourage anyone looking at this space to pay a lot of attention to the rigor of the sampling protocol and ensure that sampling is happening. Right. So there's the the lowest bar is the modeled approach. The lowest bar is the modeled non-specific approach. So mm-hmm. I tell you, <laughs> I till less, uh, you tell me how much CO2 I sequestered. There's like one level above that that's I tell you how much... Uh, tilling, I I didn't do you to, and I tell you where I am, and you tell me how much CO two I sequestered, and then there's there's I think there's something in the middle too, which is there's been a kind of movement around using imagery, satellite imagery, hyperspectral imagery from planes, things like that to estimate soil carbon impacts, and then what you described is physical sampling, which is actually taking soil samples, measuring CO two composition in the soil, and doing that on some regular basis to measure over time. Um, what do you think is the sort of minimum bar of viable quality? <laughs> I think right now we need to be measuring. Um, but I, yeah, maybe kind of two tangents to go on. Um, first is if you're in a market and um, everything looks like a ton, so I could take any of these approaches and get tons that I can sell and they look the same in the market, um, may really result in a race to the bottom. It's way easier to not sample anything (laughs) and get some tons. It's cheaper. You can sell your tons for cheaper. Um, And that's really attractive, and it's it's an unfortunate feedback loop. So one thing I would call out is just this dynamic where even if you have a couple of protocols that are requiring rigorous sampling, they have to compete against protocols that allow people to really cut major corners. So huge challenge. Um, Second thing I would call out is around the kind of satellite imagery. You know, there are a couple of approaches that are, uh, you know, really doing, uh, there are a couple of people who are doing really interesting work trying to figure out how uh, satellite-based verification might contribute to MRV in this space. Um, and I would say we're just kind of not there yet. It's hard to see the soil. You can't actually see the soil. You can see kind of uh, corresponding factors on the surface. Uh, so I would caution people against uh, right now being ready to take a satellite-based approach. Um, I really think we're in a place where we still need to be measuring soil carbon, building up public data sets and improving our our models and understanding of how these dynamics play out over space and time. All right. So that's challenge number one, measurement and verification. Uh, and, and should note that that measurement and verification is an ongoing challenge. It's not a one-time challenge. You need to totally. continually uh, measure the soil in the, or measure the carbon in the soil rather, uh, to verify that that removal continues to have occurred, which speaks to the second challenge you described, which is durability. Um, so here, as I understand it, challenges, again, we'll just stick with this example, reducing tilling. Um, you can reduce your tilling, but if you then till later, you then go ahead and still re- release that CO2 into the atmosphere from the soil. 
So saying that you have removed a ton really is you've removed a ton for now. And mm-hmm. at some point it will get re-released into the atmosphere depending on, and that, that at some point depends largely on future practices from on that farm, on that, on that land. So what, what's the current state of affairs with these protocols and uh, ensuring durability? And then what would be the kind of gold standard in your mind? <laughs> oh, that's actually a really big question um, because it touches on what the role of temporary carbon should be in the land of offsets writ large. But maybe I'll set that aside and we can return to it a little bit later. Um, right now, standard practice is that you enter into a contract in which you promise to maintain your practice or your carbon storage um, for a certain amount of time. Many of these protocols require decadal scale commitments, so as little as 10 years or maybe up to 30 or 40 years. These contracts are usually insured by a mechanism called the buffer pool. So when I am issued credits... I don't get to keep all of them. I have to put some portion of them into kind of a shared bucket of extra credits that can be used to compensate for any unintentional losses over the claimed permanence period. So if I decide, um, if something happens, if I go bankrupt or there is some sort of natural disturbance that means that I lose a lot of soil carbon during this period that I've promised to maintain it, Uh, the theory behind a buffer pool is that it makes good on the ton. It ensures the ton for the permanence period that the contract dictates it represents. Um, You know, we've seen really big challenges with buffer pool insurance mechanisms in lots of sectors, including forestry. We've gone really deep on the California forest buffer pool. Um, But in general, that's kind of the shape of how these permanence claims are generally made in the voluntary market right now. Right. And so we're not talking about forestry, but I've seen some of the work you guys have done on the on the California forestry buffer pool. I mean, it's basically depleted because of wildfires now, right? We've we've essentially eliminated all of it because forest fires have burned down a lot of those trees. <laughs> yeah, it's not all the way gone, but we've we have used up all of the credits that were meant to protect against forest fires for the next 100 years in the first 10 years of the program. So really severely undercapitalized um, and not reflective of risks that we're likely to face. Uh, And there's kind of no reason to expect that the challenges we've seen in that system aren't mirrored in other sectors and other registries. Right. And in the soil carbon context, like you're not going to see forest fires like you you do with forestry, but you could imagine uh, farmers 5, 10, 15 years from now changing practices for a variety of reasons and not adhering to that contract they signed long ago. You can also imagine a farm getting sold, new owner changing practices. There's lots of ways that that, that buffer comes into play, uh, albeit I imagine not at the same sort of like singular massive scale that you can see with the forestry buffer if you have wildfires. Yeah, I wonder, I haven't gone deep on this, but I wonder what uh, analogous dynamics could emerge around drought. Um, and also worth calling out that a lot of these systems differentiate between intentional reversals and unintentional reversals, and they're treated somewhat differently. But I think the high-level point stands that, um, you know, you might have a question about how this buffer pool insurance mechanism actually um, guarantees the claimed permanence. 
Mark your calendars for May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events or click the link in the show notes. Okay, and now let's move on to the third issue, which is which is actually my high horse usually when I <laughs> when I talk about carbon markets, which is additionality. And the reason it's my high horse is that I worked in carbon voluntary carbon markets for a little bit back in 2007, very long ago in the early days. At that point, there was a, a the minting and creation of a lot of what were called carbon offsets for which you know, people were talking about additionality, but um, there was no additionality. So the classic example of this would be uh, operating renewable energy projects. And so the concept of additionality is basically, is your purchase, is your is the minting of this credit and the sale of this credit the thing that is enabling the carbon reduction or removal to occur? If it's not, then those dollars are achieving nothing, right? If the thing would have happened otherwise anyway, then there was no point in uh, in minting the credit. I've heard people make arguments to the contrary that I don't take, uh, I don't give a lot of weight to. That's sort of like, well, you're making it richer, so you're you know creating uh, economic incentive for future projects to get built. I just don't, I don't think that works in the context of a market where a credit is supposed to represent a ton. So, so additionality is a challenge across all. I mean, it is it, it's important for any carbon credit that's going to get minted, how does it look in the context of soil carbon? Really challenging. <laughs> um, yeah. So there are many dimensions of additionality that you might be concerned with. Um, at a very high level, we, in our review of soil carbon protocols, did not see sufficient additionality protections. A couple of patterns to call out. You know, one... Uh, a lot of these protocols allow people to get credits for practices they started a while ago, like maybe up to 10 years ago. Um, and you know, while it's really important to reward people who did the good thing before we incentivized them to, doing so in the context of offsets is really challenging because you then produce these credits that represent you know, something that probably already would have still kept happening because they've been doing it for the last 10 years and you justify emissions on their back. Um, so, you know, that is one space in which you, if you were outside of the offsetting context, rewarding people for practices they have been doing that are really beneficial for soil health and carbon outcomes would be great. Um, but in the context of offset credits, big red flag. Um, another is, you know, kind of high-level challenge um, is just that we're still looking at um, prices for these credits that are pretty low. So, you know, you might be looking at $15 a ton. Um, and I think there's fairly wide consensus that to really kind of bridge that gap and, uh, and 
really enable someone to invest in what it takes to adopt new practices, that price would need to be a lot higher. So that kind of raises a, a big picture additionality question about whether the trading of these credits can actually support um, novel adoption that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Um, but across the board, you see additionality screens that, in my opinion, look a lot more like box checking exercises and a lot less like kind of a rigorous uh, questioning around how these dollars enable new practices. I think admittedly it is, additionality is tough to measure and to to guarantee in the context of a sort of behavior change type credit. This is where it's appealing to have something like direct air capture, where you're just like, look, this thing provides no economic value but for the carbon removal. So obviously the purchase of the carbon removal enabled it to happen. In the context of soil and and you know changing agriculture practices, it is it is trickier. So just what would you imagine that questioning to look like? How how can you get um any degree of certainty around the idea that the minting of this credit was the thing that enabled the practice to occur? Well, I think you called out a really interesting pattern that is additionality um, and the challenges with additionality vary really widely based on the sector you're talking about. So way easier to establish additionality for something like direct air capture than for soils or improved forest management. Um, You know, I'm actually... I don't know what it would look like to take this complicated space where farmers are making really, really complicated decisions based on economic factors and family factors and um, the weather (laughs) and establish that this payment for this credit is the thing that is enabling them to do something new. Um, You know, for me, that points me to the conclusion that, um, you know, maybe these practices are best supported via another mechanism, like zooming way out. If these are good things that we want to happen, can we separate that from the minting of carbon credits that justify ongoing emissions and require those credits to represent, you know, some really robust idea of a ton? I've made that point sometimes too, which is, you know, when when people argue, well, like maybe we don't need additionality. We just want to incentivize these practices. Uh, My point in response is, okay, so let's not measure these in individual tons that are traded as if they offset some other equivalent ton then. We should absolutely subsidize this stuff, right? Yeah. There should be money flowing to it, no question. But if we're going to represent tons that that somebody else can then use to net out their own actual emissions, then we need to have fairly strong certainty of all these characteristics you're describing. Totally. Yeah, I think the dynamics really change. If you if you take away this uh, justification step, if you take away the offsetting step, um, all of a sudden, you know, your flexibility around MRV really changes. Your need for it to be permanent or to um, kind of adjust things based on its short duration, that really changes. The need for it, it to be perfectly additional goes away. Um, supporting these practices, I think, becomes a lot less fraught when you take it out of the offsetting context. On the downside, you probably lose the market. You lose a big a big chunk of the market, right, who is in the carbon market, not in the business of, uh, of subsidizing practices they like from farmers somewhere else. So, so that's the trade, I think. Um, if I can I wanna- interject, just, 
You know, I think there's a really interesting conversation, for instance, around net zero right now, which recognizes that if you want to really uh, offset or compensate for ongoing emissions, you have to be talking about permanent carbon removal. So carbon removal that sequesters carbon on the time scale of uh, the impacts of your emission. Uh, and you need to be talking about stuff that is, has really high MRV rigor. Um, so I think there's, and kind of the traditional or conventional sectors of forests and soils are being put in this new bucket of beyond the value chain mitigation. And I think there's kind of lots of interesting conversation happening right now around how uh, those credits should be used or treated or related to um, climate claims. Um, but I think it's kind of a shifting a shifting conversation right now that might provide more space for something that looks a lot more like philanthropy in a really positive way. So you mentioned the some folks think we should just have permanent or very, very highly durable. That That's a good um, segue into kind of a broader conversation, stepping back for a second. So the the nature of carbon markets, let's, let's just focus on carbon removals to be more specific at the moment. So we'll forget avoided emissions for a second. The nature of the evolving carbon removal market right now is that you've got uh, one category of credits being minted, technologies being developed that are in the high durability category, let's say a thousand years plus of durability, at least expected thousand years plus of durability. Um, and then you've got another cat and, and the prices for those are in the hundreds of dollars a ton at a minimum, some over a thousand dollars a ton for kind of first of a kind stuff. And then you've got the second category of the admittedly less durable, which I think is predominantly soil and forestry, which as you said, could be in the, who knows, a couple of years of durability to a hundred years of durability, but they're also priced much cheaper in the market. Um, you know, in the tens of dollars a ton, for sure, not hundreds of dollars a ton. There's some stuff in the middle as well, things like biochar, which have like potentially hundreds of years of durability. Um, and so the way that the market sort of looks at the moment and seems to be evolving to me is that the way you account for differences in permanence and to some extent, the way you account for differences in sort of like certainty around measurement and verification and additionality is via pricing. It's considered a lower quality credit so it's a lower price. Do you think that that's the and There have been attempts to sort of quantify this better in ideas around things like ton-year accounting, which you can explain to us. Um, but at the high level, do you think that that's the right way to think about it? Should we have varying prices based on quote-unquote quality, which is a sort of amalgamation of all the factors we've been describing? Well, that only works if there's some pressure for buyers to want high quality stuff and not to want cheap stuff. <laughs> um, so I think there's a big question there about closing the loop um, and making it really clear that not all tons are tons, that you aren't choosing between uh, one thing that is $10 and one thing that is $500 that you can use in the same way, that they actually represent really different assets. Um, yeah, and that doesn't really exist yet, although we see it emerging in, you know, both individual buyers who have decided to uh, to really value different parts of this ecosystem. Um, 
you know, Stripe is an example where they basically said, you know, we want to support permanent stuff because we know it's real and we know we need a lot more of it. Um, so we're only going to buy stuff that represents a thousand plus years of durability. Um, but the vast majority of the of buyers in the world right now, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe don't even know what the difference is between one of those really expensive, high quality credits um, and something that uh, maybe is is much lower quality or really doesn't represent a benefit at all. So huge gap there. Is that a gap to be filled by third party standards bodies who can, and you see some of these both for-profit and non-profit that are, I think, attempting to do this and sort of assign grades to different types of credits based on quality and all these, all these other characteristics. Like, is there, if we ultimately within this voluntary carbon market that is still kind of wild westy and has been for a long time, if we ultimately settle on, you know, one or a small number of independent standards bodies who have done the work to separate these groups from each other and figure out what the right robust methodology is to do so, do we then end up in the right place? Or is your view that like the moral hazard of, uh, of creating quote unquote tons of credits from lower quality sources is just always going to be so high, it's probably not worth it. I want us all to tell the truth about what is happening. And maybe that comes from a standard body that people really buy into. Maybe it comes from SEC um, making everyone disclose what their net zero claim actually is backed up with. Maybe it comes from some other regulatory source that um, demands that certain types of claims connect with certain types of credits. I can imagine lots of ways for... um, consensus to emerge around which credits you can use for which claims. Um, But I do think it's just tremendously critical. Um, You see emergent efforts, for instance, SBTI, Science-Based Targets Initiative, um, they have actually made a really clear statement around um, which types of credits you can use to compensate for residual emissions. So, Um, You know, you've done all of the reduction you can, which really has to happen first. That is absolutely the priority. And then you get to 2050 and um, you have some residual emissions. Maybe you're applying nitrogen-based fertilizer. Maybe you're doing something else that's just really tremendously hard to decarbonize. How do you compensate for those ongoing emissions? SBTI says really clearly, uh, well, you need permanent carbon removal. They also say you can... um, buy all of these other credits beyond the value chain, uh, which to me looks a lot like philanthropy. Um, And I think, you know, if there is real clarity around that um, and if it is enforced, is a really positive outcome. Um, So where exactly that kind of truth-telling or uh, kind of closing of the loop comes from, I don't have a super strong opinion about, but it's really clear to me um, that, you know, there are lots of people working on it and it's a, a critical piece of the puzzle. I guess final thing, I mentioned it, but I do want to spend just a minute on it because I know you've put a bunch of work into this as well. One of the ways, I, I, I take your point that, you know, if, if pricing ends up being the factor that differentiates these credits from each other, then you need incentives for buyers to buy high quality credits. Otherwise they'll just, you know, the market will will get flooded with the low quality stuff. Assuming that, Assuming that there is a mechanism for that, um, one of the 
proposed solutions to how do we determine what the value of a 10,000 year credit is, highly verified yeah. additional credit is versus a 20 to 40 year soil credit uh, that's a little harder to verify uh, is this idea of 10 year accounting. Can you just give an overview of, of what 10 year accounting purports to do and then what you think the sort of opportunity is or isn't there? Sure. So 10 year accounting emerged in the late 90s, early 2000s as a kind of family of methods for thinking about the value of temporary interventions in in forests uh, to preserve forests. And um, what it purports to do is create an exchange rate where you can say, I need X tons of carbon stored for one year or five years or some other temporary term. And if I have that kind of disproportionate amount of short-term stuff, we can consider that equivalent to a smaller quantity of longer-term stuff. Um, so fundamentally, tenure accounting is trying to create an exchange relationship, an equivalence relationship between different quantities and duration of carbon storage. You know, tenure accounting <laughs> is actually a lot of things. There are different methods, but I would lead by saying, I really don't think we should do it. Uh, I don't think tenure accounting represents um, the physicality of temporary carbon storage in a meaningful way. So we know that you know the timing of our carbon storage really matters um, in, in for the climate benefits that we care about. Um, people, you know, there's been some great research recently characterizing the potential role of temporary carbon storage, for instance, in relation to its ability to reduce peak temperature. You know, in that framing. It really matters whether we have 100 tons of one-year storage or two tons of 100-year storage. The ability for those different storage scenarios to impact peak temperature and provide this benefit that we think is really valuable is tremendously different. And I think tenure really drops the ball on um, representing those physical outcomes in a way that is meaningful um, for comparison between different durations of, of storage. Um, what I do think is really great is that the reemergence of 10-year accounting has prompted a kind of renewed conversation about what the value of temporary carbon storage actually should be. So if you have 20 years of, of soil carbon storage, how should we actually value that? Right now we just call it a ton. It's sold on the market like it's just a ton. Um, but we've known for a long time that that's kind of goofy. Like, we want to think more robustly about um, the, t the dimension of time. So I think there is huge opportunity for creating a more robust framework that, you know, probably first looks really in a rigorous way at the actual physical impacts of temporary carbon storage um, it, through the lens of, of climate outcomes that we care about like temperature, um, and then probably to do these temporal trade-offs and comparisons, it requires moving into the, the land of economic valuation, which is always going to be normative and is always going to be challenging. Um, but to pretend that we can get this done completely in the physical world, I think really hides the ball on 
on the trade-offs we are willing to make. Um, so in summary, I think we should leave 10-year accounting behind, and I think there's a lot of room for creating a more robust framework for thinking about the value of temporary carbon storage. All right. Complicated stuff in soil carbon world, uh, which is why I wanted to talk about it. Thank you so much for helping to illuminate it at least somewhat. Sure, yeah. Uh, always more layers to uncover, um, but I appreciate you asking some good questions. Freya Che is a program manager at Carbon Plan, where she focuses on carbon removal. So what did you think? There are strong opinions on soil carbon I've learned as I've explored the market myself. Let us know what yours are. Uh, find the show on Twitter at, at @catalystpod. You can also find me there. If you like the show, as always, go over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get the podcast, and leave us a rating and review. This show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links to Carbon Plan's reports. And as always, Postscript is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors including advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf and Dalvin Abouaji, mixing by Greg Vilfrank and Sean Marquand, theme song by Sean Marquand. Our managing producer is Cecily Meza-Martinez. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst.